Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Today we're welcoming composer Miles Hankins onto the podcast, who together with Marco Beltrami has composed the music for the new must-watch Hulu series Nine Perfect Strangers, starring Nicole Kidman and Melissa McCarthy. And anyone listening should go and watch the trailer for that. And I'm sure everyone's going to watch it. But um, so welcome along, Miles. How are you today? And where in the world are you today? Thanks, Alice. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, I'm doing very well, and I'm here. Uh, bright and early in my in my studio in Burbank, California. Uh, this is where I do all my writing. And uh, I'm not usually here this early. So this is a kind of a, <laughs> an interesting change here. Oh, okay. Well, um, congratulations on getting to work very early. And um, all the more <laughs> lovely to have you on the show then if you've made this special effort <laughs> today. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, well, that sounds like the right place to be then to be inspired and be around all the, the Hollywood stuff and all the films and all that, right? It is. Um, this is actually an interesting building. Um, there's a few composers here. Um, uh, one composer of note, John Debney, is the, actually the owner of the building. And John has scored many, many films. And um, he's in this case, he's sort of my landlord, which is interesting. But um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, composers uh, hanging around here and uh, it's a constant source of inspiration. We're also right across from the Warner Brothers lot. So if I ever I, uh, you know, forget my place, I can just look out the window and see that uh, famous water tower and... <laughs> reminded that I need to get back to work <laughs> yeah nice big reminder for you there um <laughs> cool so I know uh there are often really tight deadlines which a lot of people wouldn't perhaps realize for doing scores for tv shows or films so when did you wrap up the music for nine perfect strangers because obviously that's out now I don't know if all the episodes are out yet but it's definitely on tv already yeah I think um I was just speaking with a producer yesterday I think I think they're delivering the final episode this week um Hulu is releasing the episodes once a one one new episode a week I believe um they dropped a few episodes initially last week and I think they'll be rolling out the remaining uh, episodes as the weeks tick on as far as the music goes um it's true in 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 TV especially the deadlines can be extremely tight especially if there's a you know 23 episode order in this case, it was an eight-part limited series, um, and we were actually sort of fortunate to get uh, three of the episodes right up front before we even began working. So we actually had the luxury of kind of having some exploratory time before the clock really started ticking. Um, obviously, as the show uh, begins to move on, um, you know, the pace has to kind of move up a bit, and we were, you know, we were never, we were never crunched, but we were, we were moving quite fast by the end. I think we delivered the final scores for the eighth episode well it would have been it would have been at least a month ago now but we um or at least a month or two actually but we you know we we made uh we made our deadlines as we as we always do okay good good sometimes a lot of people need that um last minute pressure sometimes to get things done depends on the way people work of course oh um, absolutely like cramming almost, and, i guess for a test <laughs> absolutely and i you know i'm an advocate honestly for for tight deadlines i think I think nothing cures writer's block quite like a professional deadline. So <laughs> it's sometimes sometimes we're grateful to have less time than more time. Yeah, exactly. And um, just a bit of the synopsis here for anyone listening that um, hasn't seen the trailer or whatever. So it's from the creators behind Big Little Lies and The Undoing, which are two huge shows in America, but also in the UK as well. They did really, really well over here. So Nine Perfect Strangers takes place at a boutique wellness resort that promises healing and transformation as nine stressed city dwellers try to get onto a path to a better way of living and watching over them is um 
Masha. Am I saying that right? So it's the the Masha. Yeah. Masha, the the character played by the lovely and wonderful Nicole Kidman, of course, who's there to reinvigorate their tired minds and bodies. However, these nine perfect strangers have no idea what is about to hit them. So. No spoilers, please, because I will most definitely be watching this. And uh, I know it's on Amazon, I think, already. Um, So was this an immediate yes when you heard this synopsis to get involved? Well, absolutely. I mean, Marco and I have collaborated with uh, the brilliant director, Jonathan Levine, on a number of projects. I think this is Marco's fourth collaboration with John, and this is my third we did a film um, back in 2015 called The Night Before with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and um, a, a nice ensemble cast of great characters. And, oh, I uh, saw that, actually. I've seen that for the first time last Christmas. Oh, really? really, really liked oh, yeah. it. Yeah, it was on Netflix, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, a couple of years ago, we scored a film called Long Shot with Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen. And uh, this this is a definitely a departure from from those films uh i mean the truth is that everything john does is unique he puts uh he really puts a unique stamp on it and uh as marco likes to say you know jonathan has uh, a unique talent for kind of uh examining the human condition and and telling telling stories through uh through his his own um special lens and and kind of letting the world see situations emotions and characters you know in in a, in a kind of um fresh light in this case um you know it's no exception john has i think outdone himself with this uh this production the cast is incredible the writing is absolutely incredible uh no spoilers of course but um it it gets it gets pretty intense and it's uh it's a wild ride um as far as uh as far as that goes i mean i would i would follow jonathan levine you know to the river he's 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 incredible and i would always jump at the opportunity to uh to collaborate with him and with Marco as well. Marco and I work on uh, a number of projects together, and it's always a thrill. Uh, I think he's one of one of the most interesting and you know original voices in film music. Um, and with Marco, you know, you always know that you're going to get something that's going to be special, original. We always try to we always try to do something that's a little bit different and come at it from a from a fresh perspective. So. Um, yeah, always. I will always be up for it uh, with these guys for sure. Good, good. Uh, it sounds like you've got a great partnership there as well, working on all those amazing films. So, yeah, that's excellent to know you've paired up again. So going back a little bit um, before this film and all the other films you worked on, what was your route into composing? Were you super into film scores as a kid? Did you always think you would like to do something along these lines? You know, it's funny. I mean, it's, it's I've, I've told this story before <clears throat> in interviews. It's a, It sounds a little cheesy, but it's true. I, I think the first job I ever said I wanted when I was a child was film, film composer. <laughs> um, all the other cooler kids were, were, you know, wanted to be astronauts and, uh, you know, but I, I wanted to score films. And I think the reason uh, comes a lot from the influence of my, my parents who kind of raised me on classic films, classic cinema. I, I grew up uh, every Sunday night, we would watch a classic, you know, whether it was Gone with the Wind or Lawrence of Arabia or The African Queen. And by the time I was in high school, I was just sort of walking encyclopedia of, uh, you know, cinematic knowledge, <laughs> and, um, much to the chagrin of my friends, uh, my long suffering friends. But, you know, I think I remember when I was, I think, about eight years old, my father took us into Manhattan. I, I grew up in New York and we uh, went into the city and there was a screening of a 70 millimeter print of Lawrence of Arabia. And I just remember, <clears throat> I just remember that overture so vividly. Uh, that opening sequence where Peter O'Toole is 
loading up his motorcycle and the, that sort of extended credit sequence. And Maurice Char's, you know, operatic uh, overture just playing through the whole through the whole thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I, I was I was uh, really influenced by that. Um, years later, I was, uh, you know, we were, I was talking with Marco about some of the films that influenced us. I remember at a young age seeing the film Once Upon a Time in the West, the great uh, Sergio Leone masterpiece. And my sister and I would just watch the opening sequence from that movie, like on a loop. <laughs> and then the way that the score just kind of um, just weaves through everything. It starts with sound design at the train station and then it, it, it pivots into uh, the sequence at the farm and that amazing cue when, uh, when Henry Fonda and his men come walking across the prairie and you realize that they're the bad guy and everything. I just, I, you know, watching things like that in my formative years really just um, it stuck with me and it, it resonated in a way that made me realize the power of film music and how it could completely change you know, the scene, it can change the, the, the narrative, it can change the intention of a character. And it's this kind of snaky force in the background that um, is really kind of pulling the emotional strings. So from an early age, um, I was inspired by film and music. I used to actually make home movies as a kid. My friends and I, we would <laughs> sort of make these little, we would make these little, you know, film noir mysteries mm -hmm. or whatever. And um and it was always a passion for me. I studied piano and, and violin from an early age. I actually studied composition uh, as a child uh, in theory. And once I got into um, grade school and high school, I was uh, you know, studying jazz piano. And I went to college at the University of Miami School of Music. I was a piano major. I also studied composition there. And after, after that, I went, to, I went back to New York and I was studying with a composer named Darren Hagen, who's... Um, a prolific and brilliant composer of opera and art song and concert music. And he was a, an apprentice of Leonard Bernstein and a Guggenheim fellow. And he was a real uh, amazing influence on me and, and kind of bridging the gap between all the different disciplines that I had studied from electronic music to jazz, and then ultimately to orchestral music and film score and, and pop music and everything in between. Darren was really the uh, kind of the catalyst that brought it all together and um, that was, you know, that's, that's, that's a sort of a long-winded <laughs> explanation of my, my musical uh, kind of academic career anyway. Oh, that's great. I love how focused you are as a kid, knowing that's what you want to do. And most people would say, oh, I don't know, like fireman or something, you know. So uh, you went down <laughs> well, an unusual fair, route, but all good. Yeah, I mean, saying it in, in a two-minute diatribe, I mean, I, you know, I think the truth is I was, I was probably a pretty scattered and, and more well-rounded kid. But yeah, I, I, did, I did have music and, and movies in my life as a constant uh, influence and companion for sure. Oh, I love it. Well, it's nice to know that these films that we all probably watch as kids go on to inspire other kids to go and do it and get yeah. into themselves. So that's amazing. And um, you've mentioned, you know, a few of the films that you've worked on, which are great. And I saw you also did the music for A Quiet Place Part 1 and 2, among many others, of course. But um, I actually interviewed um, the sound editors, Ethan and Eric, about their work on that. I don't know oh, how much wow, you had great. to do or maybe completely separate i suppose um you know with the sound design stuff i'd love to hear the composer's point of view on that because what were your initial thoughts on the concept of the first film given the characters can't make any noise how did that affect the music for the film yeah well that again that was that was another amazing opportunity i had to uh, work alongside marco beltrami and uh, buck sanders who is marco's uh, longtime creative collaborator and when these two guys get together um amazing things can happen really. Um, and I was fortunate to uh, compose 
additional music for that score alongside those guys. And we all work together as a team. Um, the, the first movie, it was a unique challenge. It really was. Um, we've, we've spoken about it, uh, in the past. It's, it was, um, really like nothing, nothing that we'd ever, uh, dealt with. Um, and Marco wrote an incredible, incredible score. He wrote some of the most beautiful, uh, family themes that I've, that I've heard. Um, and, in terms of the intersection of sound design and score, you know, the sort of mission was to try to find music that, and sounds that would, you know, really bring a fresh take to, to this genre, to the kind of horror uh, sci-fi genre and to kind of create something that really sounded different. Um, Buck Sanders built um, unique instruments for that, that, you know, had never been heard before by a human ear. There was the use of, lots and lots of analog synthesis we had a live orchestra um, the techniques that we wrote for the orchestra were very experimental um, in some cases we would just write a series of gestures aleatoric gestures and have the orchestra uh, play them sort of at random and then we would bring a more editorial process to assembling some of the some of the music um, in terms of recording the orchestra buck utilized um, some carbon microphones actually that uh, when 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 placed in the right proximity to the sound source, uh, can distort in, in very interesting ways. Um, we we manipulated a lot of analog distortion, like that, um, and a lot of analog processing. So it, it was it was a real kind of cornucopia of um, <laughs> sort of uh, compositional experimentation and and sort of laboratory experimentation. But in terms of the theory behind it, you know, in terms of our kind of process, we were very cautious <clears throat> to not overscore um or it, I, I should say that was the constant challenge mm. you know when you have no dialogue um less is more is really the you know the mandate and as as film composers you know that can be a challenge you know sometimes we're used to being being having to really play up play up the emotion and 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 really ramp it up to 11 um in this case it was it was often the opposite and trying to thread that needle, that balance between, you know, no dialogue, sound design, and score, and 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 probably most importantly, silence. Um, I think silence plays the most impactful and important role sonically in that whole franchise. You know, it's it's, it's when it's completely silent that it's the most terrifying and the most immediate. Um, but that's great. That's cool that you spoke with the sound designers. I mean, the sound design in those films is incredible. And, and we did a lot of sound design on the score side as well. And we, there was some back and forth about making sure that we were, weren't working at cross purposes and that, you know, sonically everything was going to sort of fold in together. And I think ultimately, um, ultimately it was a successful combination. You know, we had a, we had a nice result, I think of a sort of homogenous blending of the two elements. Oh yeah, definitely. And um, I actually interviewed them. Um, they just wrapped finishing all their work on it. It was just before the pandemic hit though. And obviously no one knew what was coming. It was going to be yeah. out soon. And then of course it was delayed for over a year. None of us could have possibly known. So it was quite interesting listening to that one back thinking that it was going to be out any day. And it was actually the first film oh I saw yeah. once the cinema was opened again in the UK. Um, so it was really yeah. nice uh, sort of full circle moment. And I thought the sound design, the score was great. Um, Curious for you, watching it, having worked so closely on it, does a film like that have the potential to, you know, shock you, make you jump or whatever, given that you kind of know what's coming? 
It really does actually. Um, so something kind of interesting happens. You, you work on a project for like months and months and then you record the score, you mix it uh, and then you, you know, you, you deliver it to the dub stage and then you, you have a healthy, like sort of vacation from it, you know, <laughs> yeah. you take, you take some serious time away from it. And, and that distance is everything. Uh, when, when we go back and finally watch, you know, if it's a theatrical release or if we see it, we happen to catch it on, you know, Netflix or TV or something. Um, it's, it's always a surprise. In fact, even Nine Perfect Strangers, uh, you know, I just watched the first two episodes and I was just blown away. I couldn't believe how good the acting was and the writing is. And <laughs> I thought the score played very nicely. And I was like, this is a really good show. <laughs> I know? mean, it's got Nicole Kidman in it. It's got to be good. Right, exactly. And she's incredible. She really is. <laughs> and and as, I have to say for the listeners, um, as, you, as the show progresses, I mean, she, there's some inc- like just, you know, phenomenal moments uh, with her and in, 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 especially in some of the later episodes. So definitely stick with it. It's, it's, it's worth it. Um, but yeah, we are, we're always pleasantly surprised. And, and also sometimes we're, we're sort of, uh, you know, shocked and, and kind of uh, thrown for a loop. Like there'll be suddenly a complete reordering of the scenes. The editorial will have changed. Uh, sometimes music that we wrote, it will have been completely removed or pared down on the mix stage for, for whatever reason, maybe, uh, maybe the the melody was was too intrusive uh, once they laid the sound design mm-hmm. in or once they had the final ADR and they had to kind of duck it or you never really know so it it is a bit like watching it for the first time it feels fresh and there are always a few surprises um one of the episodes that that I was just watching uh I think they had reshot the entire uh ending sequence so I, I was literally seeing that for the first time Oh, wow. And um, I wanted to know as well, how much input did you have on the score? Was it the director's vision? This is what I want it to sound like. Uh, or was it quite, was it left to your own interpretation? What Was there a vibe you had to sort of get across? How did you even start with this? In terms of the, uh, the in terms of Nine Perfect Strangers? Yeah, Nine Perfect Strangers, sorry. Yeah, yeah I mean, that was, that was a really great collaboration with Jonathan. He's very musically... Um, savvy he's he's very kind of open musically he has his own personal musical tastes and he but but he's open to a lot of different styles i'm always surprised by what seems to turn him on musically and and there seems to be like no limit to what he's um what he's up for you know uh with with nine perfect strangers it was it was almost like a a, a like a like a fairy tale for us because we you know usually in a in a film or or a tv show there's a very kind of restrictive limit to where the music can go stylistically um i think you could probably notice this if you watch a lot of tv series or films you know where like almost every cue sort of sounds like (laughs) can sound like the same cue um in in this case it it, it just we never found the limit on on nine perfect strangers and i think it has to do with the fact that the characters are also eclectic they're all coming from different backgrounds and the fact that as the show progresses and evolves um it just there are so many twists and turns that um they're really just like there was just never any wall we never hit a wall in terms of where the where the show was asking us to bring music so even at the final episode we were exploring completely new directions musically um but in terms of you know where that direction came from there was some temp music in the in the original score but um you know we sort of ended up abandoning that direction and with Jonathan we were able to just explore and try our our you know whatever we we sort of felt was right and he would be open to it he always goes along with us he always comes along with us on the first pass and then he'll help sort of shape it excuse me if he thinks that 
um, if you thinks it needs to kind of nudge in one direction or the other, but it's, it's a very free flowing kind of encouraging collaboration with Jonathan and, and with Marco and I, you know, we work in different studios. Marco um, will write, uh, you know, his ideas and I'll write my ideas and then we'll consistently, constantly be sharing them. And, and then sometimes I'll take a Marco's idea and develop it into a queue. And sometimes Marco will take something I did and develop into a queue. And it was, it was very collaborative, but you know, this, this definitely was a COVID project. <laughs> and so there was, there wasn't a lot of uh, in-person time. We did get together for uh, like set, you know, sort of weekly recording sessions. And, um, but that was about it. And it, it was interesting to kind of experience how uh, the lack of, of that personal interaction really didn't have any impact on our process because, you know, as, as many listeners probably know, you know, the life of a composer is a very solitary one. And um, we spent a lot of time here in our studio caves. So it, we didn't even really notice <laughs> the, the difference. Any difference, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and because it's from um, the guys behind Big Little Lies and The Undoing, it makes me confident uh, there must be some kind of sinister or mysterious element to the show. The trailer's very... It doesn't give too much away, but maybe just hints that just something is coming. I'm, I'm not sure what it is, having not watched it yet, but I will report back when I have. But just wondering how you kind of weaved that feeling of whatever it is, like unease, whatever you want to call it, into the yeah. music. Well, that's a that's an astute observation. I, I will say no more in terms of... Uh, it's going to be something horrendous. I, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, the, I will say that there's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot in there and there's a lot... Um, a lot of surprises and it, they, they keep you guessing for sure. Um, in terms of the music, you know, that's, a, that's an excellent question because when we, when we started writing the opening sequence for the first episode, we had, we had come up with this um, sequence of chords that we call the tranquillum chords. Tranquillum is the name of this, of this health retreat. And um, it's, it's just a sequence of four chords that pivots from, you know, minor sevens to major sevens. And then it modulates at the tritone and it has a sort of, almost a Bernard Herrmann quality to it. It's a bit of a kind of a mysterious underpinning. And we were able to manipulate these chords with analog synthesis and um, Buck Sanders would process the string performances of these chords with a reel-to-reel tape player. And he would very speed the pitch and the tempo just to, just to kind of make it a little bit off kilter and twist it a little bit. And so we opened the series with, with this kind of sort of vaguely ominous uh, presence and and to jonathan levine's credit he said no we we have to we have to open it as as optimistically and as innocently as possible and not foreshadow anything and we went through a few different iterations before we finally settled on a very simple very kind of almost um almost winking at you tune uh for the for the opening sequence as all the guests drive to the spa and you can hear that on the soundtrack cd actually it's track number two called um welcome to welcome to tranquillum and it's a sort of piano and string quartet setting. It's very, you know, it's, there's something almost kind of cheesy about it. And, and it's, it actually plays perfectly and it gives us the perfect starting point and the point of departure with the most distance we can travel. You know, if we start there, then we, we, have, we have so much room to play with. Whereas if we had started, you know, kind of halfway to the mystery already, mm. uh, I think we, we would have sort of hit a wall too soon so it was uh, one one example of uh, jonathan's kind of um, you know dramatic foresight okay interesting um i saw as well so the story tells the um what the story obviously through the the guests different um points of view so how different is the music uh when you're approaching this from each different character's point of view and um i don't know if each one had a theme of 
sorts. Um, but uh, which which one was the most fun to score? Yeah, I mean, the, it, because it's it's really truly an ensemble cast. And if we had tried to assign a theme to like every character, you know, nine different themes, and then of course there's like other themes. You know, oh, yeah. it would have just become like what uh, happens when they all meet. Yeah, it would have been <laughs> it would have been too much. So we we decided to you know that that instead of doing that, we have a few main themes. We have a, a theme for Masha, which Marco wrote. It's incredible. It's played on the bass flute. It's very sexy and evocative and and mysterious, and that that sort of weaves through a lot of what we do. We have those tranquillum chords, which I mentioned, which is a kind of a motivic device that you'll hear threaded throughout the series. And if if you do listen to the soundtrack album, you can hear that pop up. Um, we have the Welcome to Tranquillum theme that I mentioned, the piano and string theme, which sort of bookends the whole series and pops up a little bit. And other than that, instead of giving each and every character a theme, we have a few other what I would call like B themes, sort of um, secondary level themes that we actually pass between the different characters, almost like a relay baton. And Instead of saying, okay, this is uh, Carmel's sad theme. <laughs> Whenever Carmel is sad, we play this theme. That theme can actually pass along to the different characters. And, and that's a different way of kind of weaving a cohesion, I think, between their shared experience and also just keeping the, keeping the music more focused and less, uh, you know, like you said, like less just sort of all over the place. And then, of course, we have certain like instrumentational and production um, sounds that are you know con continuous through through the score we have a certain analog sense that we were using we have certain types of processing like i mentioned the the, the tape reel-to-reel -reel, um very speed techniques the string quartet is 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 present throughout everything and we mangle the string quartet to varying degrees of intensity uh, throughout the show depending on where things go dramatically Oh, interesting. Um, so, what was um, yeah, some so, of the technology used to do that, just out of curiosity? What are you using to kind of mangle and mash up all these sounds? Well, like I said, um, you know, Buck is uh, like kind of a mad scientist, Buck Sanders. He's sort of a brilliant sound designer and, and producer, as, as well as a composer. And it should be mentioned, you know, Buck did quite a bit of writing on this score, too. And he was very much, uh, uh, you know, a, a composer as well as us. Um, but, you know, for when we recorded the string quartet, Buck utilized uh, you know, a wide array of microphones. We have the normal kind of decatry and then we have the spot mics. And he was using some broadcast mics, uh, which are, I think, you know, I'm not even sure um, exactly what type of mics they are, if they're, if they're um, ribbon mics or not. But they, they, they would pick up and hype at different frequencies and, and respond differently to the performances. I believe we used some carbon mics on this score as well. I'm, I might be wrong about that. But once we get all these different um, acoustic sources recorded and then Buck can take them and put them through, you know, any, any of the boxes he has. And you know, maybe we should have brought him on. He, you know, he could, he could talk for hours about his, <laughs> no, his, we'll his musical laboratory, but I, 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 just to go back to it one more time, that, that, that very speed technique was, was sort of an incredible idea. The idea being that if you record the music live at twice the tempo and up the octave, and then, and then very speed it back in magnetic tape, you'll bring it back to the original intended pitch and tempo. And it will sound almost like you had recorded it live at the original pitch and tempo, but just slightly off. And there's something kind of crazy about it. it, it and then you can, you can exaggerate that to insane degrees. You can take it down you know, two octaves, three octaves. And when you take a string performance down like three octaves with very speed, 
the vibrato that the string players naturally play naturally slows down. And so the, the vibrato gate becomes this kind of wong, 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 wong. And it becomes this almost like um, otherworldly sound. You mm -hmm. can make the strings sound like low reeds or like some kind of, you know, sinister electronic instrument and, and, and basically make it sound like something, you know, not like a string instrument at all. So we, we manipulated that to, like I said, varying like levels of intensity depending on what was happening in the show. And, and then we would take those layers and we could use them as sort of like background padding in some of the cues and then bring other elements like the Tibetan bowls or the wind chimes or the bass flute on top of that. And, you know, all that layering and, and mixing together just ended up kind of coming together as, as, as the little, you know, as the, as the sort of musical DNA of the show. Mm. And what about um, the ending? So obviously you hadn't actually seen the ending. You didn't know what the ending was when you had composed about three quarters of the show. So I guess when you first saw the ending, without giving away spoilers, what did you think? <laughs> and then how did you go, right, how are we going to do the music for this? Well, that's totally true. I, you know, we were, we were just like the audience, we were sort of kept hanging. And that was, you know, we were sort of on the edge of our seats. And that, 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 sort of helped us actually because we never wanted to telegraph anything through the score so you know by virtue of not seeing the ending we we couldn't possibly do that um when we you know when we did finally get the episodes they were actually there were actually several revisions what happens when you're scoring a show is like you know or a film you know you're writing to picture and you're writing to the latest edit but you know, every couple of days, the editorial team is turning over a new cut. <laughs> so every time they change the picture that, you know, will sometimes change the change the cue, you know, sometimes not very much at all, and sometimes drastically. Mm. Um, I think we went through a few different turnovers of the last two episodes, but um, the ending was tricky. I don't want to give anything away, but I'll say that scoring it, we we did we did have to try a few different things to, before we really finally nailed it. And the character of Masha is a very kind of complex, layered, nuanced character. There's, there's no simple, um, you know, you can't, you can't describe her character in like one, one or two sentences. There's, there's just way too much there. Mm -hmm. And the, the final sort of send off, it was, it was interesting to, um, try to thread all of that into one piece of music. I'm not sure that we <laughs> not sure that we actually got it exactly right, but I think we came close. It, it's it's she's a very complex character and and, and a, a very interesting one to score. Okay, I'll bet. Well, I cannot wait to see this. I'm really intrigued now. I must check if it's on Amazon because I don't think we get Hulu over here, unfortunately. Mm. Um, uh -huh. I don't think it exists over here, so I'm sure it's going to be on Amazon Prime or already is. So I'm going to have a look oh, good. right after okay, this, actually, yeah. Miles. So um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today to talk about this. Um, I'm sure it's going to be the thing that everyone's watching and talking about before long. So it'll be nice to have your music um, in the back of my mind or knowing your thoughts behind it when I watch it. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Alison. This was really fun. Yeah, you too. Um, you have a great day and um, I'll talk to you another time, maybe on your next project. Okay, great. Sorry, I, I literally just called you Alison. Should I call you Alice? Can we do that again? So I didn't even you notice. You could have totally got away with that. It was Alice. I just heard a tail off there. Yeah, Alice, Alison. Close enough, Miles. It, yeah, it's Alice. Okay. <laughs> okay, no worries. All right. Thanks so much. This was great. All right. Thanks, Miles. Bye. Okay, bye. Headliner Radio. Supporting the creative community.